Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. And together we research and break down complex issues facing our society, and we bring you those breakdowns every other week. We promise to bring you honest analysis backed by research, and maybe a little humor, although a lot of the things that we cover are pretty heavy topics. We recommend getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. For this episode, we're jumping back into our series on systemic racism. This will be part four of that series, and we highly recommend going back and listening to the first three parts. In those, we cover the basic idea of systemic racism, and we talk about the impacts of racism on the criminal justice system, on housing, and education. But if you can't wait to jump in, maybe healthcare is your jam, we'll give you a quick rundown of how we're defining systemic racism before we dive into the content of this episode. Then we'll walk you through some racist ideas that informed explicitly racist policies. We're defining racist ideas as ideas used to justify explicitly racist structures and practices in the healthcare industry. We'll cover what things look like today, how systemic racism impacts the healthcare industry, and what health outcomes for uh, black indigenous people of color looks like and what those are. And finally, we'll close with some good news. As usual, expect as much research as we could pack into an episode. A little humor, probably a rant or two. Definitely a rant or two. Uh, so, uh, so let's get started. Welcome to our fireside. brief refresher about what systemic racism actually is and is not, since it's been a month since we last talked about it. What's important for the bulk of our conversation is that systemic racism isn't the swastika-wearing Confederate apologists who actively chant, Jews will not replace us. Yeah, you, you know the type. That's what comes to mind when people hear the term racist. But the equally important word in this case is systemic. Remember that systemic stems from the root word system. Systems are not people. It's the underlying logic that determines what happens in given situations. For example, on your phone, the system is the architecture that determines what happens when you touch certain buttons or enter certain commands. The system does not have a conscience or any real decision-making capability. It only does what it was built to do. This is exactly how systemic racism works. Remember that our country was built from explicitly racist foundations. That may be uncomfortable for some people to hear, so let's sit with that for, for a second. There is no amount of equivocation, selective history, or justification that will change that. We, the United States, only exist because of the subjugation of non-white cultures. The longer we spend dancing around that, the longer we are going to struggle as a nation to unite. That's our history. We have to own it. And from those explicit foundations, we grew. We changed. And yes, we came to recognize, reluctantly in many cases, that this was wrong. 
but change does not happen with the passing of a law. At least not real, deep-rooted, perspective-shifting change. The people who held power in these explicitly racist systems still held power after it became illegal to discriminate on the basis of race. Those people still passed on their ideas to future leaders, and yes, those people helped build the system that we exist in today. Not all of them even knew that they were building a system that would disproportionately impact certain people. Some of them may have even felt that they weren't racist, that they couldn't be racist, that they had friends that were black, that racism couldn't still exist because it was illegal. So these systems were built, slowly, one little bit at a time. And to use a definition that I like, we have ended up with a system of policies, practices, and procedures that work better for white people than for people of color, often unintentionally. Right. It's a cumulative effect. Dr. Trisha Rose, who's the director of the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America, explains that the concept of systemic racism refers very specifically to the ways that forms of discrimination in the past or the present work together in intersecting ways to produce a systemic effect overall. I mean, thankfully, we're past the days of whites-only water fountains, but we still have a lot of cleaning up to do if our goal is equity in our systems. The work is in the small things, in the nuances that were built to exclude or prefer one group over another. This is what happens when we become complacent. When we assume that we don't need to constantly challenge our assumptions, to evaluate the impacts of the laws and rules we have in place, to value people with different life experiences than us. We build systems that don't represent every American, only the people holding the pin. That's why it's not enough to simply not be racist. You, you personally, you listening to this, you, have to be actively anti-racist, prepared to identify and rip up the weeds of racial inequality everywhere you see them. And yes, that means in your own life, just as it means in my own life for me. I think in order to understand how we came to a place of systemic racism in healthcare, we have to start with the racist ideas that formed the culture and the policies in which our healthcare systems were built. The first collection of ideas that built these systems centers around the belief in innate biological racial differences between white bodies and black bodies. Researcher Rana Hogarth found early evidence of these theories in accounts of the yellow fever epidemic that struck Philadelphia in 1793. During that crisis, white physicians and lay people erroneously thought that black people were immune to yellow fever because of their race. In reality, some few may have carried and acquired immunity because of previous exposure in their native regions of West Africa. However, that idea went completely unrecognized as the theory of race-based immunity gained popularity in no small part because it eased the consciences of those who required slaves and free black Americans to continue in their work 
even in the midst of a public health crisis. And those are not the only racial ideas about black bodies. At any given time, theories have gained popularity that black people have fewer pain receptors. In the 1787 manual, A Treatise on Tropical Diseases and on the Climate of the West Indies, That's British doctor Benjamin Mosley made the claim that black people could bear far more pain, even surgical operations, than white people. He said, what would be the cause of insupportable pain to a white man, a Negro would almost disregard. He added, I have amputated the legs of many Negroes who have held the upper part of their limb themselves. That's actually led to, historically, the use of black populations for certain terrible experiments. And we'll talk about some of those, but uh, even... I can't remember right now, and it pains me. I tried to find this article, uh, but I saw an illustration of a black woman on a uh, doctor's examining table, and he was basically using her to, if I recall, uh, explore like the biology and the physiology of the female anatomy without any sort of anesthesia. Yeah, um, that was not uncommon at all. Yeah, and it was, and it, there was a quote under it that was along the lines of, "Don't worry, she can't even feel this." Right. And that, that theory was very likely created and propagated to support the idea that uh, backbreaking labor and corporal punishment were perfectly acceptable to inflict on black people because, oh, they can barely tell. You know, you have to whip them even harder because yeah. they can barely feel what you're doing. I definitely remember reading about how whipping wasn't considered as bad for black people uh, as it was for white people because they, they couldn't feel it as much anyway. And as we'll talk about later, that has actually led to a whole host of complications in treating pain in black patients, um, even currently. Yeah. There was another theory that was propagated that black people had large genitalia and small skulls, which meant that they were promiscuous and unintelligent. Um, this theory was heavily propagated, especially during segregation when black bodies were considered to be highly dangerous. One of the ways that they were dangerous is that they were considered to be sexually predatory to white people, men especially, but also women. Um, they became a focus of fascination and display in human museums all over the world because of what was considered to be grossly exaggerated sexual physical characteristics. Hmm. I mean, I mean, we still hear those stereotypes today, and I'm, even in politics, at least as as recently as the '90s, was the the theory of the super predator, uh, which is directly tied to this sort of uh, <laughs> physiological differences. They're, they're rooted here in in these black people uh, being less intelligent and more aggressive. And I think it, it's important to acknowledge that some of these racist ideas also find a translation and almost an adoption in the cultures that they're referring to. So we see that a lot in, especially in hip hop culture and in pop culture, we see hypersexualized black women mm -hmm. who are valued for the size of their rear end and it's, it's a focus of pop culture. There's this whole conversation going on about the appropriation of black beauty standards by 
white women, and most of that centers around large lips, wide noses, and large behinds. Yeah. You see it in other entertainment as well. We've touched on this a little bit, but there's the uh, there's basically two stereotypical roles uh, for a black person, especially in, in plays or in uh, in cartoons, and one of them is the uh, the completely desexualized version, which is known as the mammy, I think, um, which you see represented in things like uh, Aunt Jemima or in the Tom and Jerry cartoons, the uh, maid who takes care of the house that'll be in some episodes. Uh, is is directly a call out to this stereotype of of uh, the completely desexualized African American, uh, and then on the flip side of that coin is the hypersexualized, which you were just talking about. Um, you see still depictions today of the sort of like exotic black person who is you know seducing uh, people. At its worst, it was that, you know, uh, uh, they'd seduce your partner away from you, however that happened. Um, it's just interesting to see how something like this this medical assumption that if people of color had, had large reproductive organs and small skulls branches out into, into several different aspects of our life. Yeah, I mean, Spike Lee made a whole movie about it. It's called Jungle Fever. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. It just, it's, these ideas get so pervasive throughout culture that I, at least for me, I almost didn't recognize that they were so pervasive until I started trying to find the root of them. And then I found all of the branches that I interact with every single day. Right. Uh, some of it's so. As with all everything that we've talked about in this, it's so integrated into society, it hardly feels like it's actually even a, a racial stereotype anymore. Moving on a little bit, another thing, another uh, incorrect theory or theory that <laughs> has some problems, black people have lower lung capacity is a common one. This theory was popularized by a physician called Samuel Cartwright who actually invented a device called the spirometer to measure lung capacity and validate his theory. Spirometers are still used in medical practice worldwide to diagnose and monitor respiratory illnesses. Uh, and they actually have a, a quote-unquote race correction built into the software which controls for the assumption that blacks have less lung capacity than whites. Another one is that black people experience a limited range of emotions, which is, from a human perspective, I don't know how you could arrive at that conclusion. From a cultural perspective, I can see how you would meet somebody from a different culture and not understand how they express themselves is different from your own. It takes a certain level of awareness to evaluate those differences, but clearly the people making these assumptions and these analyses didn't couldn't think like that right and and we have to consider that again this is one of those theories that gained popularity in an effort to validate owning and using other human beings right. as beasts of burden so it wasn't as bad if you considered that they didn't really miss their family when they were separated they didn't really miss their homeland they didn't really feel sorrow 
at their state of being. Um, you know, it was even considered at one point that that the propensity of black slaves to flee their their masters was some form of a mental illness. That they were so affected by this mental illness that their better judgment got away from them and they, they fled their captivity. I, it sounds ridiculous to us, but... Right. I mean, when you've been raised in an environment that basically teaches you that black people aren't actually people, that they're subhuman, it's easy to see, if not empathize with, but it's easy to see how uh, people would then go further to convince themselves that the horrible things that they're doing uh, aren't so bad. And I think it speaks to the subconscious mentality, or not mentality, the subconscious idea that people knew what they were doing was wrong on some level. They were just trying to find ways to justify it and ease their own conscience. And um, I think a lot of what we, a lot of what we see in the conversation about uh, race relation is from the context of trying to to make white people more comfortable, to ease the burden of guilt or or whatever that might be. And I think we need to recognize that it's something maybe you and I should should explore in a future episode, we have to recognize and, and respond to that. Otherwise, we'll never have an honest conversation. We'll never reach a, a, an honest um, epiphany, I suppose, cultural epiphany about, about what's happening in our world today. Uh, the final one, I, I specifically asked to cover this one because this is something that I was actually taught when I was younger. Um, and that is that black bodies are physically superior. We see it played out uh, when it comes to the, the black athlete. Um, this idea that just because they're black, they are going to be a better athlete than a white person, which is obviously racist on its face. I was taught when I was younger that black people actually had a, an additional muscle in or around their knee that, I laugh thinking about it now, um, <laughs> that allowed them to run faster and jump higher. Um, Man, I wish I had that. <laughs> right? Dude. Uh, my athletic capacity is highly limited, and I'm pretty sure that's not just because I'm half white. <laughs> I don't know, Robin. I mean, we met at the gym. I've seen you do some incredible things. Uh, very few of them involved running and or jumping. Okay. I'm going to point that out. Okay, fair. Lifting massive amounts of weight, though, I'm going to put that out there. You're strong as heck. Yeah, well, short levers. Yeah, okay. It's physics. Don't sell yourself short. Ha, ha, ha. So bad. Um, we promised you humor, folks. I didn't say it would be good. Yeah, I mean, like most racist ideas, like we've talked about, these ideas have not disappeared. Hogarth notes that the false belief that there's something peculiar about black people's bodies has become a feature and not an aberration, especially in the production of medical knowledge. She notes that medical experimentation in the 20th century and the marketing of new drugs in the 21st century have both been influenced by these persistent and incorrect assumptions that innate racial differences exist. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. We still have a lot of ground to cover. Yes, and, and I think we should note something else. Racist ideas related to health are not exclusive to black Americans. 
myths about biological differences in Native Americans and Hispanic people and Asians also exist. A common one, again, one that I was, we were talking about this before we started recording, we both encountered this one. Um, Native Americans are genetically predisposed to alcoholism. There, this is generally presented in something that has come to be known as the firewater myth. The idea is that when Europeans arrived in America, they introduced alcohol to the indigenous population, which was genetically unprepared to process it, resulting in excessive drunkenness and alcoholism. However, this myth has absolutely no biological basis, and the rates of alcoholism can be easily explained by the significant generational trauma inflicted on Native American populations. Yeah, I mean, I was I was raised in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota, and there are several Native American populations right around in that area. And it was, at least in the places that I grew up, just kind of treated as common knowledge that Native Americans had some sort of a biological inability to handle their liquor, to be blunt about it. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was never even considered that it may be, you know, because of actual cultural trauma. Environmental factors? What? Coping mechanisms? Yeah, I, I'm, it was the exact same for me. Uh, I was kind of raised with this sort of cautionary tale that, you know, alcoholism ran in my family. You know, I have alcoholic uncles and grandparents. And, uh, and then in addition to that, we were also raised with this idea that uh, we had, quote, Native American blood, which meant that we were, you know, predisposed to this, uh, to being alcoholics, which now that I'm older, <laughs> I did, like, I mean, if I have Native American blood in me, it is like Elizabeth Warren levels here. Yes. So <laughs> I, I just, I think it's funny. Um, if it weren't so sad or, or indicative of this sort of ingrained bias that we all have, it would be funny anyway. But yeah, it's just, it was, it was, it was just part of, you know, the cautionary tales growing up. Be careful. Don't drink too much. You're, you're at risk. And then even once we move past these biological difference ideas, we encounter this historical racist idea that investing in healthcare for black Americans was a worthless endeavor in and of itself. Uh, why? Well, because according to Illinois Congressman Samuel Cox, black Americans were so ill-suited to freedom that the entire race was going extinct. Not only was their smaller intellect and limited range of emotions affecting their ability to be freed people, but physically their bodies needed the hard work and the burden of plantation labor in order to continue in a healthful state. And so once they were freed, they just started dying. Um, he notably said in a speech in Congress, no charitable black scheme can wash out the color of the Negro, change his inferior nature, or save him from his inevitable fate. Again, environmental factors? What are those? Mm -hmm. We freed a bunch of people and gave them no access to food, clean water, healthcare, or a safe place to sleep, and now they're dying? They must be genetically inferior. Again, like, we laugh, 
But the gymnastics that the human brain will go through to justify the things that we feel are important, I mean, they're just out of this world. And it shouldn't, it's not really a new idea to any of us. It's just, I mean, we see it every day, people going through these complicated mental hoops and flips just to arrive at a, we'll say, logically dubious conclusion. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, but it just, I mean, like going back in history and seeing how that has so radically altered the, the, the lives and course of an entire group of people is... is it, it sucks. I don't know what other word there is to for it. You know, it's disheartening. Yeah. And it, I think once you recognize that, you recognize that regardless of whether or not you believe that systemic racism is an issue right now, which hopefully if you've been listening to these podcasts, maybe you're at a better place with that thought. There needs to be work done to counteract the explicitly racist things that we used to do, right? So um, I hope that we can communicate the need for cultural reflection uh, through throughout this entire series. I hope that's coming through. It's like, we have to do work no matter what, no matter where you fall. There's, yeah, and there's work to be done. These kinds of justification processes, it's not just, they're not unique to people who are trying to justify outlandish perspectives. This is a normal psychological process that each and every one of us goes through every single day. Mm -hmm. And the key to keeping us as a society from falling into these big giant pitfalls is to recognize that that's a process that we go through every day and take the extra steps to question our own justifications on a regular basis and see whether or not we're contributing to some of these prevailing beliefs that in a hundred years will have incredible negative effects on entire groups of people. I mean, this prevailing belief that freed slaves should be left to the natural conse consequences of the follies of freedom without any intervention or support from the government and the people who kidnap them and force them into labor, it, that, that prevailing belief led to the systemic situation we experience today, but also a group of people who were willing to question their own justifications led the way for the abolitionists and the civil rights advocates that came after. So we have to decide whose path we're going to fall into. It's interesting. We see this kind of in a micro scale all the time. We see people, you jump through, you the listener, have done this. You've jumped through mental gymnastics to justify buying something. I would guarantee, no matter who you are, there has been a time when you, you started that process and you're like, well, it's a little expensive, but, you know, and you bought something that maybe you didn't need or was a little out of your range at the moment. It's that same sort of trigger, that same sort of pathway that was used in, in these situations, just on a potentially less harmful scale. Um, and then we see all the time the idea of mindfulness being, I guess, preached, that we all need to be mindful of our actions and what we're doing. And it's the same thing. We have to be mindful as a culture about what we're doing and how we're addressing issues. Going back to this historical perspective here, 
a lot of these justifications or explanations were masks for the fear that medical support of freed blacks would lead to uh, racial amalgamation and intermarriage. We know from previous episodes that that was a, a massive driving force for a lot of the policies we've talked about. And that leads us directly to the racist idea that has been a common thread throughout the series, the idea that whites and everybody else should be kept separate. We've covered this one in detail pretty much pretty well prior to this, so we'll keep it brief. White Americans have gone to incredible lengths and through incredible mental gymnastics to keep people of color in separate spaces. We took land from the Native Americans, consolidated them on reservations, we developed programs to ship black Americans to their own country in Africa or to uh, colonies in the islands or in the Caribbean. And, and it's no different when it comes to medicine, when it comes to healthcare. The story remains the same. There is this weird segregation on how we treat people and how they receive medical care. And I, I think this is a good place for us to dive into some of the explicitly racist policies that came out of these racist ideas. And one great place to start is with the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, the Freedmen's Bureau, which was formerly known as the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, which is a very fancy title, was established in 1865 by Congress with the intention to help millions of former black slaves and poor whites in the South in the aftermath of the Civil War. The Freedmen's Bureau attempted to provide food and housing and medical aid. It established schools and sometimes offered legal assistance. And it also attempted to settle former slaves on land confiscated or abandoned during the war. However, the Bureau was prevented from fully carrying out its programs due to the absolute and complete mess that was Reconstruction. If you remember, and I can't remember which episode it was, but it was part of this series, we talked about the struggle against federal Reconstruction efforts that went on in the South, and basically the South's absolute refusal to participate in any of the programs that were a part of that reconstructive effort. Why? Because they were terrified of an uprising of empowered black people who would then take over and dominate them the way that they had dominated black Americans for the last 250 years by that point. I mean... One of the most significant blunders of this Freedmen's Bureau was their attempt to provide medical care for freed black Americans. The organization was tasked with providing this access to medical care, but it was heavily underfunded and understaffed, leaving few willing medical professionals to care for a disproportionately large number of freed blacks. Requests for more staffing, more supplies, more money, were absolutely met with deaf ears. And even though more than 40 hospital facilities were built, they were never used, as re Reconstruction efforts gave way to Jim Crow laws and heavy segregation. The 1619 Project uh, podcast, which is an effort by the New York Times, has an excellent episode that outlines this tangled mess that was the effort to provide care to these freed Black Americans. And so rather than getting into tons of detail about that, 
Uh, we'll just link that in the show notes. And then we alluded to it earlier, but another horrifying example of how racist ideas and explicitly racist policy intersected is the history of medical experimentation on both slaves and free black Americans. Um, because of the incredibly graphic nature of the history of medical experimentation on black people, I think we're going to give you just enough here to aid you in finding your own information if you're interested. But we know that not everybody has the stomach for this kind of thing, so we really do want to be respectful of that. Yeah. It gets really hairy, especially in stories like that of Dr. J. Marion Sims. He is considered to be the father of modern gynecology and one of the pioneers of the industry in general. And he's responsible for establishing many of the standards of care that are regularly used in OBGYN practice, even today. If you are a female listening to this program and you have access to medical care, there's a high likelihood that your care has been influenced by his efforts. However, some of his greatest surgical accomplishments were achieved through heavy experimentation on black slave women. Sims tried and tested and perfected his surgical techniques, some of them very, very intricate, on conscious slave women without pain medication or any form of anesthesia. Because, number one, those things were fairly expensive and hard to come by, and there was absolutely no reason that a doctor would waste them on black women. And... Number two, because of that prevailing belief that black women had fewer nerve endings and higher pain tolerances than white women. He was lauded throughout medical history until recently when an acknowledgement of these unethical practices actually led to the removal of his statue in Central Park in 2018. 2018. Yeah. Again, for our future uh, archaeologists listening to the sound files, that was two years ago. It's 2020. Exactly. And these things were not a secret. His yeah. processes were well documented. Yeah, uh, I, I realize now that the, uh, the illustration that I was referring to earlier was about uh, Dr. Uh, Sims here. It was, that it was referencing his efforts, I guess, to... To develop these practices and it's just ah, how how many hoops do you have to jump through to convince yourself that even somebody with fewer nerve endings quote unquote <laughs> like can't feel being cut into and worked on right like, fewer doesn't mean zero Exactly. And because his, his processes were so well documented, the responses of the women undergoing his research were also very well documented. And there is absolutely nothing in that documentation that indicates that they felt any less pain than one would think that a normal human person would experience if basically being subjected to vivisection. I mean, yeah, they were being tortured. It was in the name of science, and we get to dress it up because it helped people, I suppose. But it's just, I mean, that's what it is. It's torture. And... (sighs) 
anyway, that's why we uh, we talk about these things. That's why we you know have this podcast is because horrible stuff happens, and especially when you when you're stuck in that mentality of the other that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Yeah, and and as a black woman who has. Uh, benefited, obviously, I have two kids, so I've benefited from the research and the, the practices that Dr. Sims developed, but also I carry the burden of knowing that it could very well have been one of my ancestors who was subjected to this. Like, I had to really sit with that in doing this research, and I think that's one of the reasons that I was pretty hesitant to get into it too deep, is that I, I don't know if I have the capacity to sit with that fully yet. But if you are a black woman and you're listening to this, um, I would love to hear from you how this makes you feel. Because it makes me feel all kinds of ways. I'm a dude. (laughs) 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 There are many reasons why I'm grateful for that throughout my life. This, This would be one of those times. I cannot imagine having to shoulder that emotional burden. Um, I mean, obviously, not to say that we don't have our own struggles, but that's just, I don't know. It's dark. It's dark. And there's this, uh, I think there's sometimes this cultural subconscious division that we have between how the United States treated African-Americans um, and, and the slaves <laughs> and how Nazis treated people, right? We kind of sort of divide the two and subconsciously we're like, well, the Nazis were way worse. You know, that was way worse. And I think the only reason it, it happens is because we, first of all, it was more recent than some of these things that we're talking about. Um, and secondly, we don't, teach the real truth about how the United States treated these people. You know, I never learned about this stuff in school. Um, obviously. I'd be really interested to know if this kind of stuff is taught in medical school. Cause I'm not a doctor. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. If any, anybody out there listening is a, is a medical doctor and, and you know, this is taught, we would love to hear from you. Um, and, and how this is handled. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's move on. I think we've sat with that long enough. I actually did learn about this next one in school uh, in the context of uh, psychology and ethics. Um, but, yeah, it's it's you know, it's a great ethical, uh, I won't say quandary, because it's not a quandary, it's a... a Ethical horror story, I think, would be the best way to put this. Uh, And that is the Tuskegee experiment or the Tuskegee syphilis study. Probably heard the name Tuskegee, especially recently. We honored, uh, the United States honored uh, the last Tuskegee Airman, um, I believe, recently. And uh, he was from this area, but you'll see he wasn't one of the people in this experiment. The Tuskegee syphilis study was, to put it bluntly, a blatant example of racial bias in medicine. There are no two ways about it. In the early 20th century, many medical authorities, who were mostly white, 
wrongly considered African Americans to be especially susceptible to venereal disease due to lust, immorality, unstable families, and other social tendencies. I would like to interject here, a lot of these thoughts persist today. Um, sadly, you'll probably see it when conversations about racial issues come up. Um, moving on. Physicians generally discounted socioeconomic explanations for the poor state of black health and argued that better medical care could not alter evolutionary scheme. Kind of that same thought process. This is process as the senator who is like, well, freed, freed black people are going to die because they need to be tortured in fields. They're just not built for this freedom thing. Yeah, crazy. Even though they were free before we brought them over here and they're... Let's not think too deep on that. Don't interject logic into Yeah, it. stop. It hurts. <laughs> Those arguments provided the underpinnings for an ethical lapse at the uh, U.S. Public Health Service. And as a result, uh, the USPHS, as I'm going to call it from here on out, jeopardized the health of an entire community by leaving a communicable disease, syphilis, untreated. In 1932, the USPHS, under... Taliaferro Clark of the Venereal Disease Division began an experiment in Macon County, Alabama to determine the natural course of untreated latent syphilis in African-American men. The experiment, known as the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, involved 400 men with syphilis, as well as 200 uninfected men who served as controls. The men were told that they were ill with quote-unquote bad blood which was a rural southern colloquialism for syphilis and anemia. Uh, but they were never informed that they were participants in a study. The USPHS was investigating the possibility that anti-syphilitic treatment was unnecessary. Despite the fact that major medical textbooks at the time, like this was not an unknown, in 1932, it was common knowledge that you should treat syphilis at the latent stage. The USPHS actively prevented the men enrolled in the study from receiving treatment. They were never given a clear diagnosis. In 1934, the USPHS advised local black hospitals not to treat the study subjects. And when the Alabama Health Department took a mobile venereal disease unit into Macon County in the early 1940s, the USPHS advised the health officials to deny treatment to the test subjects. At the start of World War II, several of the men were actually drafted into the military for service, and they were told by the Army to begin anti-syphilitic treatment. USPHS was concerned about this, so they gave the names of 256 study members to the Alabama State Draft Board and asked that they not be drafted, which would prevent them from receiving treatment and thus maintain the integrity of the study, such as it was. The Draft Board complied with the request. When penicillin became widely available in the early 1950s as a cure for syphilis, the men enrolled in the study did not receive treatment. At every turn, these men were, were denied 
a treatment, a known necessary treatment, simply so the U.S. Public Health Service could study the progression of syphilis. And at this point, like where you just ended in the 1950s, we're 20 plus years into this study. Yeah. 20 it's, years of denial of treatment. Yeah. It's not like this lasted six months and they were like, oh, wow, this is terrible. You know, this, this spent 30 or 20 years being probably being challenged, going through, uh, going through revisions, and they had to actively keep these people from being treated. I don't know if anybody is aware of what late-stage syphilis can do to a person. Um, it's, it's horrible. I'm not going to get into the specifics here, but I would encourage you to look it up if you don't know. And I'm, it's horrible. And I'm just going to leave it at that. No effort was made by the U.S. Public Health Service to protect the wives and families of the diseased men from syphilis, by the way. The officials in charge of the experiment presumed that syphilis existed naturally in the black community. Um, they presumed that African-American men were promiscuous and presumed that they would not seek or continue treatment even if given the chance. Which goes back to one of those ideas that we discussed at the top of the episode about, uh, about how uh, black people uh, and their sex lives were. <clears throat> the first published report of the Tuskegee syphilis study appeared in 1936 with subsequent papers issued every four to six years throughout the 1960s. Each report noted the ravages of untreated syphilis. And in 1969, a committee from the Centers for Disease Control decided that the study should be continued I mean, this goes far beyond the point that we were making about Dr. Sims earlier and how, you know, we demonize Dr. Mengele and the Nazis for the experiments that they did on the Jews. And one of the reasons that presumably we were able to make that distinction was the time difference. Right. But here we are both coexistent with that time period and then expanding a good 25 years past that. Yep. Actually, it's, it's almost 30 years past that. It's almost 30 years past that because in the, in, by 1972, rather, the Associated Press reported the story. Um, and it was only then, in 1972, that the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, known as Hugh, um, halted the experiment. And it was only because of public outrage, public backlash. Let that be a illustrative example of the power of public outrage. Never let anybody tell you that your voice does not matter. Um, this, uh, I don't know if it's the fact that I've had so much coffee this morning and not a lot to eat or that it's this story, but I'm actually a little sick to my stomach right now. I'm like incensed in a way that I didn't expect to be because I've read this 
so many yeah. times. Yeah, me too. I've studied it. I've studied it multiple times. Like I said, it's just once you kind of walk through and lay it out. Yeah, it's just like, I'm absolutely incensed. I am outraged. By, by 1972, when Hugh ended this, only 74 of the test subjects were still alive. Many of the subjects had died from untreated syphilis, with estimates of the dead ranging from 28 to 100 men. Many of them had actually received antibiotics for other illnesses, luckily, and had accidentally been treated for syphilis. Um, so I guess, I guess they're the, the, the quote unquote lucky ones. Um, and in August of 1972, Hugh appointed an investigatory panel, which subsequently found the study to be quote unquote, ethically unjustified. Oh my, isn't that tidy? Yeah. I love bureaucratic language. Hugh declared that penicillin should have been provided to the men. None of the physicians who participated in the study were ever prosecuted for any crimes. Although, I guess, <laughs> I guess this is good news. The United States did settle a lawsuit brought by the survivors and their families for $10 million. Well, yay, I, I guess. guess. Yeah. 400 lives nearly 400 lives ruined and uh here's here's 10 million dollars to the remaining 74 of you if it were even uh if there, if there were even that many alive by the time the lawsuit was settled right and again just to continue that comparison that we had with the the practices of the nazis i mean i think it was 2018 we were still chasing down Nazi soldiers and trying them for war crimes, even though some of them are getting really close to a hundred years old. Yeah. They're I'm, still I trying think... these men for war crimes, and not a single doctor who participated in this study was ever prosecuted. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Germany had a trial for like a 96-year-old Nazi this year. One of the originals. He was a guard. So yeah. I mean, where's the change.org petition for this one? <laughs> Incensed. That's a good word for how I feel right now. Okay. Again, explicit racist policy, we have to mention in this context that as a function of these explicitly racist black codes and Jim Crow laws, segregation and healthcare was a fact of life in much of the United States until the passage of the Civil Rights Act and even after. Many doctors, many clinics, and doctor's offices were completely segregated by race, and then even many more than that maintained fully separate wings and or staff that could, under threat of law, never intermingle. <laughs> um, so there was and still is a deficit of trained black medical professionals, uh, which basically meant that absolutely no matter where black people went to receive healthcare services, their care would be subpar compared to that of whites. Um, we've covered that separate but equal myth in detail 
in especially in the education episode so we won't spend any more time on it now uh, but information on the segregated state of healthcare in America basically all the way up through the 1960s is readily available for anyone who is interested in finding that yeah. so now that we've established those gruesome details Maybe we dig into the nitty-gritty of how systemic racism is rearing its ugly head in today's healthcare system. Yeah. I guess on the one hand, I'm glad we're into the systemic part of the discussion because it's less uh, overtly horrifying. Still sucks, though. So, as with all things that we have discussed with respect to systemic racism... Many of the problems in healthcare stem from an intersection of factors. One of the most important distinctions that you may already be guessing based on our previous episodes is simply access to healthcare. It's no mystery that in the United States, healthcare is just plain expensive. Regardless of whether or not you have insurance, it can be expensive to simply visit a doctor, let alone undertake any sort of procedure or treatment. Without insurance, simple procedures can far exceed prohibitively expensive and rapidly enter into crippling, life-altering debt. So it's no surprise that minorities, especially Hispanic and African-American families, which are disproportionately affected by poverty, are less likely than whites to have private health insurance. Even if they do have insurance, minorities are more likely to be enrolled in health plans that place tight limits on the types of services that patients may receive. Um, finally, the best quality healthcare services and providers are not always found in minority communities. You might recall one of the long-term effects of redlining is driving businesses out of those communities. Those businesses include services like healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't want to assume that there's anybody in the United States that doesn't understand the crippling cost of healthcare and even simple maintenance medication, but just to illustrate it, my youngest daughter has ADHD and she takes two medications daily. One of them is a very common generic drug that even without insurance would not cost us a significant amount of money. The other one is specifically designed for people like her who have a genetic mutation that minimizes their production of certain neurochemicals. Um, and we went through a little fuss with our insurance company over the summer. And when we were looking at having to pay for that medication out of pocket, the cost was $428 a month. for a maintenance medication that my child with a genetic misfunction needs to be successful in education, in relationships, and in life. Thankfully, I have the access to privilege that is good municipal health insurance. But I can't imagine, and I did imagine for a little while, and it, it was heart-rending being a person without access to health insurance and without access to the social safety net that is programs like Medicare and Medicaid 
and needing to provide that functionality for my child. Like that's an entirely second income to, to try to care for a child who has mental health needs. And, and I don't want to rant too much here, but as a parent who was raised in a, in a poverty situation and now who has the privilege of access to insurance and a healthy income and a stable home, that's why I will advocate to my dying day for these social safety net programs. Because there's not a single child out there that should not have access to effective medical and mental health care that's significantly limiting the potential of our, the future of our entire country, the future of our leadership, unless you only value the leadership of those who exist in privilege. And then that's an entirely different conversation. So listeners, I would encourage you to challenge your own views on these social safety net programs and access to healthcare and programs like the Affordable Care Act, because those programs could very well be providing for the next generation of exceptional leadership in this country. And those programs are definitely at risk right now. Okay, rant over. Let's look at what systemic racism looks like when it comes to healthcare for Native Americans. Going back in time a little bit, the first efforts at healthcare for Native Americans began in the 1830s as an effort to contain outbreaks of infectious diseases like smallpox that were brought by Europeans. Um, but to contain them specifically in areas near American military outposts and white settlements. We don't care if you guys have it, just don't bring it to us. And when you do bring it to us, then we'll finally treat you for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then when the many agreements on the treatment of Native Americans were made throughout the mid-1800s, some form of health care as it existed at the time uh, were also included. And then when the Bureau of Indian Affairs was fully established, oversight for that care was gradually institutionalized. Um, unlike other racial and ethnic groups in the United States, Native Americans have legal rights to federal health care services. This federal responsibility for Native American health was codified in something called the Snyder Act of 1921 and then expanded under the Indian Health Care Improvement Act of 1976. And then together, these provide the legislative authority for the federal agency that is known today as the Indian Health Service. <clears throat> but this isn't a serve-all solution for Native American health care. The IHS is only required to provide federal health care services to federally recognized tribes, and individual eligibility for those services is determined by a number of criteria, including, but not limited to, the requirement that the individual is of Native American descent. They must be regarded as a tribal member, which means they have to go through the official process of being a member of the tribe of their descent, which sounds like it would be a simple um, addition to that, but that's actually a fairly complicated process. And we know that because of the way that we've interacted with Native Americans in the past, getting that documentation of tribal authenticity is actually incredibly difficult, even when it's very obvious that a person has significant Native American heritage. Um, and, and again, so that person has to have legal evidence of tribal enrollment or significant or certificate of origin. 
and then they must reside on or near a federal reservation. And that's especially interesting because we know that conditions on or near reservations are often significantly less conducive to traditional measures of success than those in other places. But in order to maintain their access to federal health care that was promised to them by the United States government, Native Americans must remain in those areas of lesser opportunity. I'm just getting all kinds of mad. Yeah, I didn't expect this episode to hit this way, but... Um, I'm just so angry. This one's a lot harder. Yeah. I don't know why. I think part of it's just because, like, this... It's literally life and death. You know? The, the others, as you can argue, are life and death, but this is... I mean, without health care... How do you secure that inalienable right to life? Like, it's in our Constitution. Exactly. We're over here arguing about the constitutionality of mask mandates when we have Native Americans who do not have access to the constitutional and inalienable right to life. And there's so much stigma around Native Americans and how they function on reservations and this conversation of, well, why don't they leave? And it's just backward thinking. And, you know, they they almost that they've brought this lack of success, the state of poverty and, and undereducation on themselves because of their choices. But then when you look at the fact that if you're a Native American person who wants access to federally promised health care, then you have to choose to remain in that area. If right. you, I mean, some, some tribes... In order to be a legal member of the tribe, you have to live on reservation. So there's just so many factors keeping them chained to a specific location that might not be conducive to their own personal success if things were different. Yes. And then the layers of judgment that come from those who do live in privilege on how they choose to interact with that environment. Right. Um, for those who do get deemed eligible for health service under the IHS, healthcare services are provided in more than 670 IHS and tribal healthcare facilities, mostly in rural and isolated areas. And there's um, some complicated interactions about who controls which facilities and how they're run that I, I won't get into too deeply. Um, and eligible persons can also receive health care at, uh, at any IHS facility, but there are really complex rules that govern and restrict the delivery of any health services that cannot be provided at an IHS facility. So, for example, one eligibility requirement to receive health care services at a non-IHS facility um, that maybe they don't provide extended cancer treatments or um, prenatal specialties, things like that, that your local facility might not provide. In order to be eligible to get those services, in some cases you have to live within something called the contract health delivery, health service delivery area. Um, so it's basically these geographic areas that uh, follow county boundaries and are established for each of the federally recognized tribes 
and you have to live within that particular area in order to receive service at the facility that can provide that specialty service that contracts with the IHS. It's hoops and hoops and hoops. And then also, just in case anybody was wondering, the Indian Health Service is not like health insurance. It's more like the Veterans Administration, where if you're eligible, you can go to these facilities and get medical care. Um, federal funding is also supposed to pay for that care in the private sector that IHS hospitals and facilities can't provide. But the IHS is really, really far smaller than the VA, and often that funding doesn't stretch. In an NPR story on Native American issues with healthcare, a Native woman who is also a nurse and was telling the story of a time when her son broke his arm and then had it incorrectly set, um, joked, yeah, and, and in this story she's talking about the fact that she, a Native American woman who actually was um, part of some work involved with the Senate, um, took her son to this hospital in Washington, D.C., and his, his arm was set incorrectly. And she went back and explained to the doctor that his arm was set incorrectly and that she's a nurse. And she was saying how she was using all of the right words. Um, but until she pulled out her business card that had the Senate logo on it, the doctor refused to abs like to even consider um, changing the way that her son's arm was set. I, that whole story made me mad, too. But... She said that it's very well known that in, in Native American communities that you had better get sick by June because there won't be any more money or it's life and limb only and those are the only things that would be authorized. So there's this idea that if you're going to have a major medical event, you need to do that by halfway through the year because the IHS is going to run out of funding and will not authorize your medical care. Um, much like VA care, all medical decisions have to be authorized by the IHS, and getting that approval can be really difficult to attain unless it's a matter of life and or limb. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in 2004 noted that the persistent lack of adequate funding is a barrier to reducing the pervasive health disparities that affect Native Americans, which kind of sounds like a no-brainer. Right? Um, but here we are. Every year, Congress appropriates funds to IHS to fulfill the trust responsibility to provide health care services. Um, according to the National Congress of American Indians, in 2014, the IHS per capita expenditures for patient health services were only $3,107, compared to $8,097 per person for health care spending nationally. And when examining medical spending only, IHS per capita was approximately $1,904. In 2016, Congress set the Indian Health Service budget at $4.8 billion. Spread across the U.S. population of 3.7 million American Indians and Alaska Natives, that is $1,297 per person. And for context. Yeah. And that is still less than the spending oh, God. that they measured. I, <laughs> even for those, even for those 
minority groups that have access to health insurance and medical care, racist ideas still rear their ugly heads in today's medical system. In 2016, a study on racial bias in pain assessment published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science found that half of surveyed white medical residents and lay people believed that blacks have thicker skin than do white people, or that black people's blood coagulates more quickly than white people's blood. (laughs) (laughs) While it's more understandable that maybe a layperson would believe these myths, I mean, again, I was taught stupid stuff by lay people. 111 white medical students, which is half of those surveyed, indicated they believed at least one of the 11 misconceptions about racial racial physiological differences. Um, and, sorry. Believed that at least one of 11 misconceptions about racial physiological differences were possibly, probably, or definitely true. And not coincidentally... Half of the white medical students rated the physical pain of hypothetical black patients as less severe as hypothetical white patients with the same affliction. Those... (laughs) All you can do is laugh at this point because it's just so messed up. It's just the worst. Those findings are corroborated by a paper in the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics that found that white Americans were given more and better pain management care than black or Hispanic Americans, despite equal pain ratings and a lower rate of prescription pain medication abuse. The paper concludes that this result is either a reflection of the assumption that non-whites experience less pain than their white counterparts, an assumption that non-whites are more likely to abuse pain medications or both. Yeah, exactly. This study found that African Americans and Hispanics were less likely than white patients to receive any pain medication and more likely to receive lower doses of pain medication despite indicating higher pain scores. A much unhappier face on that list of emojis that they ask you to pick out when you're in pain at the hospital. Despite having higher pain ratings, they got less medication. They had their pain needs met less frequently in hospice care even than did non-Hispanic whites. Hospice care for people who are terminally ill and need to be taken care of at home, their pain needs were let, let met less frequently than non-Hispanic whites. They were more likely to wait longer to receive pain medications in the emergency department than white patients. Several studies of patients with low back pain found that African Americans reported greater pain and higher levels of disability than whites, but were rated by their clinicians as having less severe pain. And then minority or African American, Hispanic, and non-white children and low-income children, so again, that intersectionality, were less likely to have their oral pain assessed and treated appropriately, even if they had Medicaid insurance coverage. For example, Hispanic children received 30% less opioid pain medication after their tonsillectomies or adenoidectomies than white children did. It makes me wonder how much of this is 
how much of it is a direct result of these, these really old perceptions about pain and how much of it is driven by the war on drugs and how that has uh, stereotyped certain populations and how that impacted them and how much of it is, is, is an overlap of both of those things, that, that driving force. And, and I don't know that we'll ever know, but it's, it's striking. It, it is absolutely striking, especially when the research bears out that white patients are more likely to abuse and sell opio- opioid pain medications. I want to talk about a little, uh, a different factor of systemic racism in, in healthcare. We touched on it a little earlier with this uh, spirometer. This is uh, similar to that. Racism can actually be encoded with our technology and practices as well. So one common piece of equipment that almost everybody listening to this has probably either used or had used on them, I would be willing to bet, is the pulse oximeter. Um, It's a piece of technology that is used every day in hospitals. More and more, it's used in households even due to coronavirus. So very simply, a pulse oximeter measures oxygen levels in the blood by shining a light through one side of your finger to a receptor on the other side of your finger. Oxygenated blood, blood with oxygen in it, absorbs light differently than non-oxygenated blood. So based on the characteristics of the light that the receptor picks up, we can estimate fairly accurately the amount of oxygen in your blood. Yet, because this system relies on light transference, the color of the skin it is shining through can play a critical role. In 2005, a team of physicians studied oximetry's racial bias in like, highly critical detail. The group often works at the famous Mountaintop Hypoxia Lab. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a pretty cool place. It's founded at the University of California, San Francisco, by John Severinghouse, inventor of blood gas analysis. And yeah, he did uh, foundational work in medical devices for anesthesiology. So they were analyzing the pulse oximeters because it's common to test these for accuracy, but it was brought to their attention that they might be inaccurate during this coronavirus pandemic. And the team that was studying these pulse oximeters noted in their 18 years of testing pulse oximeter accuracy, the majority of subjects have been light-skinned. Most pulse oximeters have probably been calibrated using light-skinned individuals with the assumption that skin pigment doesn't matter. They, this team cross-checked the measures of a pulse oximeter and the blood gas analysis, which tells you the same thing. It's just invasive that requires you drawing blood out to analyze it for oxygen content, but it's really, really accurate. So they, they would put a pulse oximeter on a person get the reading from that, and then do a blood gas analysis on them and get the reading from that and compare them. So they they cross-checked those measures over 1,067 data points. It's a pretty robust sample size. The team found a clear pattern of errors in this. For non-white people, the machines mostly tended to overestimate saturation levels by several points. 
The study only included participants who identified as black or white, but the authors noted that degrees of errors have also been observed among Latinx, indigenous, and many other non-white people. Uh, The team's follow-up study, published in 2007, focused on safety errors for people with intermediate skin tones and included a larger group of women. Uh, This more detailed data, again, found a clear pattern. Pulse oximeters, the bias was generally the greatest in dark-skinned subjects, um, intermediate for intermediate skin tones, and the least for lightly pigmented individuals. Racial errors grew significant at lower oxygen levels, starting around 90 and growing widest in the 70s. I'm going to, like, this is critical right now because one of the, one of the things coronavirus does is limit how much oxygen gets to your bloodstream, which means it limits how much oxygen gets to your vital organs to keep you alive. And they monitor your oxygen levels to determine when you need to be put on oxygen, when you need to be intubated, when certain procedures need to be done to you. So if you are a white person and you're wearing the pulse oximeter, you're probably safe with the readout that that gives. But if you're a person of color and you're wearing this pulse oximeter, your blood oxygen levels could actually be much lower than the pulse oximeter is saying simply because of the color of your skin, because it was calibrated to somebody who did not have the same skin tone as you did. And that's, that's especially terrifying in light of a couple of things. In light of the fact that it's anecdotal, so I didn't include it as research in this podcast episode, but there is a significant amount of anecdotal evidence that black Americans and black women specifically feel like their health concerns are not addressed when they present them to their white healthcare practitioners. Um, They feel like, much like the indication that pain management caregivers would rate uh, black and Hispanic people's pain as being lower than the actual patient rated their own pain, there is anecdotal evidence to support the fact that, that minority people, especially black women, don't have their healthcare concerns taken as seriously as those of white patients. So if you are a black patient dealing with COVID-19, and again, second reason that this is concerning is because we know that minority populations have been hit especially hard by the COVID-19 pandemic because they tend to be classified as essential workers in the low-paid manual labor jobs, serving food, working in grocery stores, gas stations, things that have been running this entire time, and we know that they have less access to good health care and the resources that people need to support good health care. So you have this situation in which you are a black patient in a hospital reporting that you don't feel like you're taking an oxygen, but perhaps your pulse oximeter is saying that you are, and you have a failure to get the treatment that you need to maintain your health. That's terrifying. It's literally life or death, and it's just because of how we develop technology. And the, the group sample, the sample groups that we use to, to test and develop and calibrate that technology. Man. I couldn't find it, but there's an interesting article somewhere out there that I, if somebody could send it to us, that would be super cool talking about how the development of the, uh, the 
diagnostic manual for uh, mental disorders, uh, the DSM, is developed primarily in uh, white societies, predominantly white societies, and how the <laughs> how the cultures might influence how the symptoms appear, and that the DSM might not apply the same for somebody from a different culture, from somebody from south of the hemis uh, south of the uh, equator, even um, because there's so much difference, and we just never really think about that. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and it really speaks to the the issue we were talking about in our education episode, where we discussed how behavioral problems and mental health issues in black children are often underdiagnosed and because of that undertreated and instead behaviors that would be considered indication of those behavioral or mental health problems in a white student are considered examples of disrespectful or disruptive behavior and more likely to be punished in a black student especially a black male student than they are in a white student Mm -hmm. so that that just plays directly into that on that note let's get into some other outcomes because of this. Yeah. The most important part of of talking about systemic racism is discussing the outcomes because the outcomes are what show us that there are major problems that need to be addressed inside these systems. So let's start with just the basic health outcome disparities for Black and Indigenous people of color. For Indigenous Americans, the Indian Health Services issued a report on the disparities in health for Native Americans, noting using 2009 to 2011-ish data that noted that American Indian and Alaska Native people have long experienced lower health status when compared with other Americans. Heart disease and malignant neoplasm and unintentional injuries and diabetes are leading causes of death among American Indian and Alaska Native people. American Indians and Alaska Natives born today have a life expectancy that is five years less than the U.S. all-racist population. So 73 years for Indigenous peoples and 78 and a half years respectively for the across all races U.S. population. And then these indigenous peoples continue to die at higher rates than other Americans from diseases in many categories, including chronic liver disease and cirrhosis, diabetes, unintentional injuries, assault and homicide, intentional self-harm or suicide, and chronic lower respiratory diseases. The report also notes that the lower life expectancy and disproportionate disease burden exist perhaps because of inadequate education, disproportionate poverty, discrimination in the delivery of health services, and cultural differences, intersectionality. But it has to be acknowledged that these are broad quality of life issues rooted in economic adversity and in poor social conditions. As is the case with all other populations, Native Americans' opportunities to achieve optimal health are affected by the social determinants of health in their communities, which in turn have been shaped by social and political processes, both historical and contemporary. This is where intersectionality comes in, access to education, to income and wealth, to social and environmental factors that support health all come into play when we're discussing healthcare and outcomes. 
racist ideas, explicit racism, and systemic racism have all contributed in all of those areas to create a significant space of cumulative disadvantage for the health of Indigenous Americans. Um, and the outcomes for Black Americans are not great either. Health outcomes for Black Americans are also disproportionately poor. A report from the University of Pennsylvania using 2016 data indicated that Black Americans were 100% more likely to die from complications of diabetes. A highly treatable disease. 100% more likely to die from complications. That's, I mean, it's, it almost sounds made up. What that, what that practically means is that they're twice as likely as a white person. Yes, yes. They're 24% more likely to die from heart disease and 13% more likely to die from cancer. And again, these outcomes likely have more to do with access to health care and the other factors that support good health and racism inside the system, the growing evidence that black people's health concerns are not acknowledged, that they're undertreated, than they do with how black Americans actually manage their health. I think this is a a good place to talk a little more about intersectionality. You hit on it. I'm just going to drive this home. We bring it up in every one of these episodes. We haven't really illustrated it. We haven't really walked through it as much. So healthcare is a really good place to do that. So we're going to go back. We're going to reference some stuff from session two when we talked about systemic racism in housing. And I'm not going to rehash the whole episode, but Remember that one of the results of the disparity in housing is that minority households tend to be located in less desirable locations in a city. Locations like next to a wastewater treatment plant or a manufacturing facility of some sort. This proximity to industry um, can and, and does lead to exposure to environmental factors that impact the health of the nearby population. Numerous studies support a direct link between substandard housing and its direct impact on health and safety, which includes injuries within the home, asthma, respiratory infections, mental health issues, um, lead exposure, and the health system as a result of that bears a substantial cost and, and, and burden. Remember, too, that minority communities tend to exist in a food desert with some people having to drive considerable distances simply to go to the grocery store, like four hours. The food opportunities that do exist nearby in these communities tend to be convenience stores, and they rarely stock anything more than bags of chips or microwave meals, uh, sugary drinks. It seems incredibly obvious to say this, but a lack of access to healthy food is associated with low levels of health and well-being. Problems such as obesity, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, cancer, uh, even decreased mental function can be linked to a poor diet, according to the CDC. So we put that together. We know that minorities are more likely to have health issues simply because of factors out of their control, like where they were born. Layered on top of that, when these people do go to the hospital, they're unlikely to meet with a medical professional that looks like them, or talks like them, or thinks like them, or has 
cultural reference points that are similar to theirs, which means it's harder for them to communicate. They're more likely to receive substandard treatment because of that. When faced with patients who are from different racial or ethnic backgrounds, doctors may find that their uncertainty about the patient's condition is higher and that the best course of treatment is harder to determine. A doctor may be uncertain about how a particular disease or treatment will progress in a minority group. A patient's test results may not point to an obvious solution. Sometimes patients don't know how to describe their symptoms, or they are nervous or embarrassed about them. In addition, many doctors don't talk to their patients in plain language. They use medical terms, they use jargon is what it's called, that are difficult for a layperson to understand. Um, these kinds of problems can lead to greater uncertainty when doctors and patients don't share the same background. And in many communities, there are additional language barriers. The doctor and the patient may not speak the same language, and many healthcare systems do not employ interpreters. <laughs> On top of that, there can be cultural misunderstandings that are separate from language problems. A patient's understanding of his or her illness may be different from a doctor's perspective. Each of these, all of these, they're all factors that increase the doctor's uncertainty about what care a patient may need and reduce the likelihood that the patient is going to receive the care they need, therefore, that they're going to um, appropriately treat whatever their ailment is. The result of this all may be that the diagnosis and treatment plan may not be suited to the patient's needs. So when you combine all of these things, and this is like this is a very small slice of intersectionality. I, I limited it to culture and physical location. And there's so much more that layers in there. But just understanding that picture, you begin to see why infants of non-Hispanic black teenagers aged 15 to 19 had the highest mortality rates for four of the five leading causes of death compared with infants of non-Hispanic white and Hispanic teenagers, or why black Americans have the highest death rates of any of America's racial and ethnic groups, or any of the other disparities that we've talked about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's currently considered that America is in a maternal and infant mortality crisis. Uh, we are one of the wealthiest and most developed nations in the entire world, and yet mothers in the United States have two to three times the chance of dying in that maternal period, the period from uh, the onset of pregnancy to about three months after a baby is born. Two to three times more likely than Canadian women, literally just directly across an imaginary line, and babies born in the United States have a 76% higher risk of death when compared with infants in other wealthy nations. And that sounds really, really bad, but it gets even worse. Because when you unpack that data, what you find is that out of per 100,000 live births, the maternal death rate is about 14. So 14 out of 100,000 live births in America. But when you break those 14, when you, when you break out the percentages, 
or not percentages, but when you do the statistics math, it <laughs> turns out that in that sample population, U.S. non-Hispanic white mothers represent 12.7. Out of 14? Out of, like, so you take the total maternal deaths per 100,000 live births, right. which is like a huge number, and it breaks down to overall there are 14. But when you take right, right. the numbers individually, 12.7. That's fairly equivalent with the national average. But African-American oh, mothers yeah. are 43.5%. Holy shit. Or not percent, but 43.5 out of 100,000. Uh, right. If you were just looking at African-Americans, if you were just looking at Hispanics. Exactly. Um, infant deaths per 1,000 live births. Smaller scale. Um, all you, infants born to all U.S. mothers, the number is six. When you statistics that out, U.S. non-Hispanic white mothers, 4.8. It's lower than the average. U.S. Mm. African-American mothers, 11.7. So these are not just situations that are bad on their face. They're disastrous when you break them down and you consider the racial health disparities. And that's not even considering Hispanic and Asian women. Like when you when you break out these health disparities, and I'm about to rant for a minute, it gets really, really disastrous when you look at it based on race. And so something that I really wanna challenge everybody listening to do is consider your vote. And I know that that sounds really strange in an election where everything seems to hinder around pandemic response, mail-in voting, wearing masks, and inflammatory alt-right rhetoric. But I would highly encourage you to look at the voting record of all the candidates that you have the opportunity to vote for and see where your vote might make a difference in healthcare. Look to see which candidates have a record of voting for policies that provide equitable healthcare to people of non-white ethnicities. Look for people who contribute to programs that contribute to the factors around healthcare that allow people of minority descent to have supportive circumstances for their pursuit of healthcare. Because the only possible way to change systemic racism is to get inside of the system and stop it from perpetuating. And that's something that you can do with your vote, even if you do not want to engage based on the current hot topics that are going in the election. Look at your senators, look at your local policies, and figure out where you can vote to make a change for people who may not have access to equitable health care like you do. I, I think I'm afraid that people are going to hear that and are going to say that you're advocating for one side over the other. And I just want to clarify something right now. We don't care what the party is nope. of the person you vote for. I don't care at all. We want, what we are saying rather is when you vote for somebody, regardless of their party, vote for the person who is crusading for stuff like equitable health care yeah. for all. That not only says that they're doing that, but has a plan that makes sense to achieve that. Exactly. If it makes you angry that Native Americans have to live on reservations that have 
lower traditional success measures overall in order to have access to healthcare that was promised to them by the federal government, find a candidate that's going to vote to increase the IHS budget. Mm -hmm. Like, look for ways where your voice and your vote can actively counteract the problems inside of these systems. And not just with healthcare. If education made you feel this way, Go find politicians who are going to advocate for equitable education. If housing made you angry, if you saw your own city on those red line maps and you can still see the effects of that today, go figure out which local politicians are going to help you advocate for more equitable policy there. Because this episode made me so much more angry than I thought it was going to. Mm -hmm. And don't stop it at voting. Write letters, organize your community. Like, this is how you, you affect change. You get out and you get involved. Not yes. just at the vote, not just at the polls, all the time. Mm -hmm. The Public conversations outreach, you have guys. with people, everything that you do can be angled to improve this situation. Yes. Don't just be In outraged at your husband. Or to your girlfriends the next time you're having brunch. Like, be outraged in public. Yeah. Because that, that makes a difference. Yeah. And then if you also are outraged and you would like to tell us how outraged you are. Or you're outraged about something that you want us to investigate. Or you have thoughts or feelings. Maybe you're a medical professional or a medical student. And you have a vested interest in how this works. Or you think we got something wrong. We're open to that. We would absolutely love to hear from you. The easiest place to find us is on Facebook. Just search Fireside Breakdowns and our page will pop up. Leave us a comment there. Leave us a review there. Tell us what you'd like to hear. Tell us what made you mad. If that feels a little too public to you and you'd rather send us an email, we are firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. You can write us your own rant. Right there. We would love, love, love to hear from you. And then if you found this to be valuable or enlightening in any way, please, please, please leave us a review so that we can help enlighten and bring this information to the attention of other people just like you who can go out and advocate and fight for change to these systems. Um, on our Facebook page, you'll find a very convenient link that will take you to an app that gives you an opportunity to leave a review on whichever platform is most conducive for you, whichever platform you use. Mm -hmm. And we would love to hear from you there. And we would love for you to tell other people what you like about this podcast, because the whole purpose of this is for us to take these really complicated things and break them down in a way that makes them useful to everyone who hears them. And in a way that gives people the tools that they need to advocate for the best possible outcomes for each other. Absolutely. The you more people good news? that listen, the better. I sure do have good news. I, oh, sure I need do. some good news. This is actually really good news. Um, and I, <laughs> I'm glad that this happened. Obviously, it's good news. So, on August 25th, 2020, that was three days ago, because we're recording on the 28th, the African region was officially certified as wild polio virus free. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 
served as the lead implementing partner for U.S. efforts to eradicate polio, playing a pivotal role for three decades in helping African countries and the continent reach this milestone. Um, this is a massive public health achievement, and it actually began 24 years ago with a call to action by late South African President Nelson Mandela. Um, he challenged African heads of state and leaders to mobilize to, quote, kick polio out of Africa. At the time, 75,000 African children a year were being paralyzed by polio. Over many years and an incredibly dedicated effort and many sacrifices and volunteers and traditional leaders and religious leaders, parents, country leadership, uh, donors, uh, all of these people working together, even those in the most remote and insecure areas, have been reached with the polio vaccine. So today, about 220 million children across the African region are immunized against polio every year. In August 2019, Nigeria, the last wild polio endemic country in Africa, passed three consecutive years without a reported case of wild polio virus which opened the door for the official certification process to review data and documents from all 47 countries in the African region. So with the African region certification, five of the six WHO regions, representing over 90% of the world's population, are now free of the wild polio virus. That's good news. That's super good news. That's news I needed. I was pretty happy to hear that. Um, hopefully, hopefully you found this enlightening. Hopefully you found it informative. Hopefully you didn't get so frustrated that you stopped listening. <laughs> we thank you all very much for listening. We will be back in two weeks. Take care of yourself.